And our scripture reading this morning comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 15, verses 12 through 17. Jesus says, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask in the Father, ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. This is God's word. Please be seated. Good morning. It's good to see everybody. My name is Damien. I want to welcome all of you who are visiting this morning. And as Ben mentioned earlier, we're in a series this summer, at least in July, where we're talking about our mission and vision as a church. And if you look at the Connect, I'm sorry, not the Connect, uh, that's on my brain. Great job, by the way, Ben. Excellent announcement, as always. This is the worship guide. Uh, on top of the worship guide, we've put our mission and vision together to try to, A, let you know what it is, but then also show you how we think they fit together. And so it says, welcome to New City Orlando. And here it is. We exist to make whole life disciples for their callings. Now that's our mission. That's what we are designing this congregation to be about, to be equipping you as whole life disciples for all that God's called you to, so that every week we're being sent out into every nook and cranny of this city and this world to be instruments of the kingdom of God. Now, what we think that will bring about is our vision. And so it says here, we do that in order to see our communities flourish through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we're engaging key parts of this. We're not going to unpack everything, but we're engaging key parts. And if you were with us two weeks ago, we talked again in John 15 about the importance of abiding in the life of the vine. And what I want to do now is, is in just a second, I'll tell you when, uh, we're going to put up a, a graphic that helps us depict the target that we're aiming at when we say whole life disciples. Because if you're going to go on a destination, it's always good to have an idea of where you're going. It's always good to have a picture of that destination in your mind. And so for us, if we're going to say we're going to make whole life disciples, we have to figure out what do we mean by that when we say that, right? Well, the way that we have defined it or described what a whole life disciple is, is that a whole life disciple is someone who responding to the love of God in Christ increasingly pursues communion in Christ, community with one another, and co-mission for the world. Now, go ahead and put that up there. And what this is, is imagine this circle that's behind me as a wheel. And at the very center of the wheel, you have your power source. That's why we started two weeks ago with communion. Nothing is going to happen. The mission will not go forward. The vision will not happen if you and I are not communing with God. If we're not, two weeks ago, connected to the vine, we have no vitality. Uh, we have no connection to our life source. We will not flourish. And so if we're not flourishing, how would we expect to be instruments of flourishing in the world? And so just like on a wheel, you have the hub, which is the power source. 
If you don't have a hub, that wheel's not going anywhere. It's not turning. What happens when that thing turns is you have spokes. Think of a, a bicycle wheel now. You have spokes next that are connecting that power source to the tire, which is where the rubber meets the road, so to speak, right? And so for us, we have community as that next layer out. And today, that's what we're going to talk about. Two weeks ago, we talked about communion in Christ and abiding in the vine. Today, we're going to talk about the importance of community. Next week, we're going to talk about commission. Because you see, as we have this power source, which creates this thing called the church and community, the church is then sent out to the world in commission through witness and work. Do you see how that works? Do you see how it starts at the center and the life pushes outward and then the thing moves? If you try to start from the outside, first, you're not going anywhere. You have no power source. So that's why we start at the core with communion. And you'll notice too, primarily we think communion happens through word and prayer. Community happens through knowing and loving. And that's what we're going to talk about today. And next week we'll talk about commission, mainly as we're sent through our witness, both in word and character, and our work, day in and day out, both our job and every one of our callings. So let's talk about community today. We're going to continue on in John 15. And as we see this continuing on, uh, we'll see that Jesus is in John 15, really all the way back in 13, preparing his disciples for a grand mission. A mission that's so big, he says, you won't be able to accomplish anything in that mission unless you're connected to me, the source of power and the source of life. But in today's passage, he actually says there's something else that's needed in order for this grand mission to take place. And that is genuine spiritual friendship. Or we might say in our language, community. The first thing we saw two weeks ago is that in order to bear much fruit as a disciple— in order to change, in order to grow, in order to experience a fruitful life, we must abide in Jesus's love. It's by resting and trusting in Jesus's love, we experience the life-giving power. But the second thing is we must engage in mission through friendship, right? This task is so all-encompassing, we cannot do it on our own. It wasn't designed to be that way. Jesus is saying that we will need each other to accomplish this task. And so as we think about that today, we'll be orbiting around the questions of how do we love one another? How do we develop deep spiritual friendships? This will be woefully inadequate to answer all of your questions. So what I want to do is look directly at the text and try to see what Jesus is saying just in this text and maybe a little beyond about friendship and about community. Because clearly in this passage, the love that Jesus is talking about is friendship love. I mean, he says friends three times, three verses in a row. He says, love as I have loved you. And if you look back in verse 9 from two weeks ago, he loves as the Father loves him. But it's clear. He says, I call you friends. I lay down my life for friends. You did not choose me, but I chose you. That you should go and bear fruit. And so this is friendship love. And what I want to do is I want to look at this today in three categories. The first is the why of friendship. Okay. The second is the what of friendship. And then third is the true friend. Let's start with the why of friendship. Okay. You don't have to look very far to see that in our culture right now, we are in 
an official epidemic of loneliness. I've been paying attention to this for quite some time, and now, though, you can't go anywhere reading much of any periodical without some type of writing, write-up on this epidemic of loneliness. I googled it, just went to one page, and in the last three months, the Seattle Times, the Wall Street Journal, and Psychology Today have published fresh new articles on this epidemic of loneliness. And Cigna, the global health service company, uh, just released a, a massive study, a national survey, and they pretty sophisticated, actually, when you read how they did it, and they joined together with, with other research firms to help them put it out. And here's the upshot of it. We are lonely. We're really lonely, and it's an epidemic, right? These are the words that people keep using. This isn't new to us, but we have to take it seriously, right? Because what they're saying, what everyone's saying is there's something about friendship. There's something about deep connection. There's something about what we call community that is integral to human flourishing. There are lots of reasons you could answer as to why that is. But when we look at the Bible, we see that loneliness itself is not a new thing. And in fact, we see the first case of loneliness or being alone before sin even enters the world. So the why of friendship, we have to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. And if you're familiar with that chapter, it's the creation story. And as Moses is recounting the creation story, you see God doing lots of things. And at the end of every one of these movements is what? And it was good. And it was good. And it was good. Until all of a sudden, God looks at man and says, it's not good for man to be alone. Now, there is an emphasis here, and the emphasis is not to try to get us to think God was just winging it the whole time and just happened to get it right a few times, and, oh, I need to redo that one over there. That's not what was happening. What was happening was Moses was emphasizing something to us. Now, depending on the questions you're asking Genesis 1, if they're good questions, uh, Moses was doing all types of things in Genesis 1. But when it comes to friendship and what he's getting at when he says it was not good, that man should be alone— What he's showing us is something about both God and human beings. Just before that, he had said that God created male and female, right? He'd created humanity in his own image. So like a mirror, right? And one of the ways that we happen to image God in the world is through our relationships. But if you're a person who might pause and think about that, you might think, how is it that human beings would image God through relationship if there's only one God? Because who is God relating to before creation? And then you see why the Trinity actually is the most basic Christian doctrine. It is the most basic understanding of who God is and how the world is made since it is this triune God who has created all things. Out of his own overflow and desire, out of his pure joy, he creates all things. And so what we understand then of Trinity is that you had Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God three in one, in eternal fellowship and love and friendship. And so, of course, if God is going to create humans to image him, we must be in relationship with other humans. One author put it this way, as the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have always known fellowship with each other, so we in the image of God are made for fellowship. When Adam and Eve turned in on themselves in self-love in Genesis 3, that's sin, 
they not only turned away from the Lord God, they turned away from each other. Thus, not only did their relationship with the Lord break down, their relationship with each other broke down. Ashamed of their open nakedness before one another, they hid behind fig leaves and began, began to cast blame. And before long, Cain is killing Abel, and Lamech is dreaming of vengeance, and the human family is torn apart by lovelessness and malice. But the triune God's delight and family, and we could say friendship, still stands. And so the Father sends the Son not only to reconcile us to himself, but to reconcile us to each other in order that the world might be a place of harmony and reflecting their harmony. So you see, this is why Jesus is so adamant that we love one another as he's talking about the mission of the church, love one another as friends. It's because a core part of what it means to be human is to be in relationship with other humans, deep, genuine relationship. The reason that it's so damaging for humans to be lonely or to be alone is not some uh, emerging out of evolutionary biology. It just so happens that this was the best way for humans to exist in the world. No, it's because God put it at the very core of our identity because it's the very core of his identity as the triune God. And so loneliness isn't harmful to us because We've evolved for it to be harmful, as some of these studies may show, but it's because God created us to image him in this unique way. The other thing I want to say before we move on from the why of friendship is that you'll notice in Genesis 1, it was in the context of God giving Adam this great mission that he says it's not good for him to be alone. He needs companionship. He needs companions. But also in our passage today in John 15, the church is on the brink of Jesus refreshing this vision, saying this vision still exists, but now I'm sending you and expanding this vision. And guess what? We find out, oh, and by the way, it's not good for you to be alone. You cannot do this on your own. And so we see that the need for friendship and community is core to us as human beings. And so for the rest of our time, then what I want to do is look at how Jesus describes this deep spiritual friendship, how Jesus describes community and knowing and loving, and that is the what of friendship. So let's look at the passage, verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Now, what kind of love? He's about to tell us friendship love. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends. If you do what I command you, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. We'll stop there for now. Famous passage, right? Greater love has no one than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends. So Jesus actually is going to give us three descriptions of what's necessary in this type of friendship he's describing. And the first one is in verse 13, and I'll call it a self-sacrificing faithfulness. True, deep spiritual friendship will cost you something. To be a good friend to someone, it will cost you something. Sacrifice can be defined as the giving up of one's own interests or wishes for another. Now you think about this reality. You think about the reality of, of sacrificing for someone else. Now, Jesus goes to one extreme and says, someone who lays down his life physically for his friend, that's a friend. That No greater friendship love than that. And that's true. But there are so many other ways that we are asked to lay down our own interests 
for others if we would engage in true friendship. When I was thinking about what self-sacrificing friendship, or not friendship, but faithfulness could look like in relationship, uh, I thought about Kent Brantley. Do you guys remember Kent Brantley? Uh, He was the doctor, the Samaritan's Purse doctor in Liberia in 2014 in the Ebola outbreak who actually contracted Ebola, him and one of the other nurses, and he did end up surviving, and it was a big deal. They flew him back in a plane. Well, there was two years ago a, a documentary that came out telling that story called Facing Darkness, and I'm struck by the way that he talked about love. He talked about love in these self-sacrificial ways. He didn't even know these people. And so they would have to, you know, you've seen the pictures, suit up with all of these layers. Now you remember, it's just as hot, if not hotter, in Liberia summer as it is here. And the recommended length of time in one of those suits was 45 minutes. And those doctors would regularly spend upwards of four hours in those suits with patients. And you see pictures and you can barely see their eyes because there's so much sweat. And within 15 minutes, their eyes are burning badly from their own sweat in these goggles. And when you watch them come out, they would do this. And it was like their goggles were leaking underwater. Sweat would pour out of these goggles. And he talked about that's what love required. And you think about that and you think, yes, that is love. But Jesus doesn't leave us there, that type of love. He actually says the type of love, friendship that he's requiring actually takes more than that. It doesn't cheapen self-sacrifice. It doesn't cheapen what Dr. Brantley and all those other amazing people did. But he does move us to the next part. It is self-sacrificing faithfulness, but it's also a self-disclosing. It's a giving of your desires. It's a giving of your emotions. It's openness. It's connectedness. It's vulnerability. And self-disclosure is to make secret what was previously unknown about you. Look at verse 15 when he talks about friendship. He says, no longer do I call you servants for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends for all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. But it wasn't just stuff. It wasn't just a story that he told them. Just a couple chapters earlier, he starts to open up to them about how painful this is, about how emotional it is. He said, I am greatly troubled. Do you think he just was like, I'm greatly troubled? Probably not. Here's their master. Here's their leader. Here's their king. Here's their Messiah. And here's their friend, apparently, who's going to lay his life down. But not just that. It's more than that. It's also saying, I hurt. I am afraid. I am greatly troubled. It is self-disclosing. And Jesus calls us to cultivate these types of deep friendships. Friendships of sacrifice, but also friendships of self-disclosing. I think about how God's been doing this from the very beginning. I think about when Moses asked, what's your name? What should I tell the people? And it's as though I had a seminary professor said, when God says, I am who I am, it's like he took his business card that said, uh, God, creator of the universe on the front and turned it over and wrote his cell phone number on it and handed it to Moses and said, Yahweh. It's his personal name. He's been disclosing who he is, what his character is, what he's up to, how he feels since the beginning of his redemptive story. And so he's been up to this for a long time. But some of us are really comfortable with one and not the other, right? Some of us, we will sacrifice all day long. Some of us, like those doctors, you would have died in that suit serving people. But you would have rather died in that suit serving people than to be open and vulnerable with anybody. 
You see, true friendship will cost you not just a sacrifice for others, but to be vulnerable with others. True friendship will put you in danger, not just of dying from Ebola, but from being slandered and from, from being gossiped about and from being misunderstood. Aren't you so terrified of being misunderstood? I am. As a pastor, I'm so conscientious that one of the things that might kick me out of ministry over time could very well be me removing myself from community. And this is why, because it's so scary. Because I'm supposed to be a pastor, I'm supposed to have it all together. And then all of a sudden I tell someone something and then they tell someone else, did you know? And before you know it, I'm doing this. But that's not, that's not discipleship. I can't do that because I'm a disciple first. What about you? Now, for some of you, on the other hand, you're so willing to, to word vomit over everyone about how you feel and about what's going on and about your story. And that's good. But then you flake out and then you expect them to pursue you. Well, there's also the self-sacrificing faithfulness. Where are you for them? Now, it's not like a tit for tat. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about, though, is that it's both and. And Jesus models this perfectly. So which one are you? Which one are you more inclined towards? I'll serve, I'll serve, I'll serve, but don't know me. I'm not going to reveal myself. Or I'll reveal myself, I'll reveal myself, I'll reveal myself, but then I'll go to the next person and the next person and the next person, and I'm not going to serve you. I mean, I don't do that. We need both. Now, it's not just our own sin that makes this challenging. Think about our own cultural climate, where we are right now. Shelley Turkle is a social psychologist at MIT, and in 1995, she wrote this book called Life on the Screen. Now, in this book, Shelley Turkle is very optimistic. She's a psychologist. She's studying social psychology, so that's how we all interact together. And she's looking at technology as the opportunity for us to break out of our conditioned social, social norms. And as we discover who we are, we can find other people all over the place, even if they're not geographically close, who are like us, right? So this, this is very, lots of optimism. Well, then in 2011, she comes back years later and she writes another book called Alone Together, why we expect more from technology and less from each other. By the way, I'm not bashing technology in the sermon. Um, so that's not where I'm going. But her concern in the second book is having observed these things, she realized technology allows us to be consumers of people and relationships. Right? Consuming's fine, but consumerism is what she's talking about. We all have to, consumption is a part of, of what it means to be a dependent creature. Right? But consumerism is what she's getting at. This is what she says. Listen to this. Blow your mind. Listen to this. She says, we now consume other people in bits and pieces. It's as though we use them as spare parts to support our fragile selves. Spare parts. I'm reminded of another social psychologist years ago who called this componentiality. Sociologists love making up words. They love it. And what he meant by that was the Industrial Revolution had us give a part mentality. And so now everything in my life, I just need to add different parts on, including people. I need this person. I need this relationship. I need this person. What? To make myself whole. Or as she says it, so that my fragile self can be supported. She says, so then I say, when we approach people as consumers, we approach them for how they can benefit us. And now she goes on and says, not only does it damage other people and relationships, 
but it damages us as well. She says, once we remove ourselves from the flow of physical, messy, untidy, vulnerable life, we become afraid to get out there and take a chance with real people. We become accustomed to companionship without demands. And when that becomes our reality, life with actual people becomes overwhelming to us. See, if we're honest with ourselves, we can all tend to view relationships like this. We can all tend to view relationships as either consumeristic or, as another person said, entrepreneurial. Right? An entrepreneurial relationship is one where we invest in a relationship banking on a future return on the relationship. And these are, this is normal around us. This is normal. So, yes, 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 it will be unique for the church to actually pursue friendships like this. This, I'm pointing to the Bible now. You can't see that. I'm pointing to the Bible. Particularly the friendships where we have self-sacrificial faithfulness and vulnerability, self-disclosure with one another. That will be crazy. Crazy. And I'll tell you in a minute why it will be even more crazy in the people of God. But before I do, let me ask you this. Are you becoming a friend like this? What's your trajectory? Are you becoming more the entrepreneurial, consumeristic type of friend? Or are you moving towards the self-sacrificial faithfulness and vulnerability type of friend that Jesus is talking about in this passage? True community where you're not just known, but you're truly known, and you're truly loved. But not just that, you're also then knowing others and loving others. Which direction are you heading in? You see, this is what the world needs from us as Christians. They need our friendship, and they also need us to model true, genuine spiritual friendship. So here's a very practical example, and you will roll your eyes at it, I promise. If you're not in a community group, join one. If you are in a community group, lean in. I have to tell you, so often, when, when my community group rolls around, it's nothing about the people, but I think, I don't want to go. I'm tired. It happens to me on Thursday nights too. It's like, this is insane, right? All my willpower is, is gone by Monday afternoon. This is Thursday. <laughs> How am I supposed to go and be on again, right? Listen, it's because I misunderstand what's actually happening. I go in that mentality because it's all about me. It's all about what I'm going to get. And I just think, you know, I have friends. I have friends. I don't need this. Yeah, but you might be needed. In fact, I know you're needed. And you don't just show up, but you sacrifice. And you know, the type of sacrifice that I'm talking about is listening to people, like actually looking at them, having empathy for them, and then texting them, calling them the next day and following up with something they said, inviting them out to coffee. Empathy can look like, let me tell you just a little bit about my story, right? But not just that, but then following up with them, pursuing them and say, I'd love to know more about your story and, and why it is that this has happened in your life. I don't presume to know. Right? That, that takes sacrifice of time, of intentionality, 
of moving toward someone. And so the question is, uh, what community are you in and how are you being formed in this area of friendship and relationship? That's really the question. And we hope that community groups increasingly become a place where you get to practice this, not with projects, but with people. A practice being formed as the type of person who is self-disclosing appropriately over time and self-sacrificial and faithful. Now, there is one more thing that Jesus does say that I need to mention quickly about relationships, friendships, the types of friendships we'll need. Yes, there needs to be self-sacrificing faithfulness. Verse uh, 15, no, sorry, 13. There needs to be self-disclosure appropriately. That's verse 15. But then also in verse 16, Jesus says, true, genuine spiritual friendships are about something bigger than the friendship. They're mission-directed. Look at verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you. That's y'all, by the way. Chose y'all, appointed y'all, that y'all should go and bear fruit. Bear fruit. See, there's a larger purpose to these friendships. Genuine friendships are always in the context of a greater cause. Right? Think about marriage just quickly. This is all friendships. But one issue with marriage is when it becomes only about romance and people face to face, it'll just crumble. Because that's not, marriage is mainly about genuine friendship, not romance. Romance is a beautiful thing that's designed as a part of it, but it's about genuine friendship. And so while marriage has become only about romance and what I can get out of it and move on when that isn't happening anymore, of course, we already talked about our friendships with one another can become consumeristic and entrepreneurial, no doubt. But C.S. Lewis was on this a long time ago, right? And and what he said was, there is a face-to-face reality to love and friendship, but there's also a side-to-side where two people are side-by-side looking at a horizon together and journeying as fellow travelers together, committed to one another. There's a whole genre of movie for this, right? Like Dumb and Dumber is about this. Okay, it started way back then, like 21 years ago, right? Toy Story is about this. How in the world do Buzz and Woody become friends? The little boy. What's his name? Andy. Thank you. Andy needed them. So they came together and friendship emerged out of this. Deep friendship. Right? Guess what? They sacrificed for one another. They learned about one another. They disclosed uh, things to one another. So friendship emerges and grows because of a shared journey and a horizon. Right? Here's C.S. Lewis. The very condition for having friends is that you want something else besides friends. Those who are going nowhere can have no fellow travelers. You see, Jesus shows us that when there is a shared purpose greater than one relationship, there's meaning because these people can share in this journey together, this mission together. This is the context. Mission is the context in which self-sacrificing and open and vulnerable relationships can grow. And this is why in the church, we should expect friendships between people who are so different from one another. When the context of friendship is greater mission, then it should be normal that we see older people being true friends with younger people. That we would see different backgrounds and cultures and races and interests come together in friendship. That we would see different socioeconomic backgrounds and current realities come together. It's because this, it's because the context of this friendship is mission 
right? And it can be the mission for the good of the other. I love you. I see what Jesus is up to in you and I am committed to that in you. And so think about the disciples themselves quickly. It's quite a strange group of people. Let's just start with the 12, right? There were some working class fishermen. There was also a political zealot. That means he was basically a part of a radical group trying to overturn the Roman government at the time. And one of his co-laborers happened to be a tax collector who worked for that same Roman government, homeboys over here, trying to overturn. And then if you expand it beyond the 12, you had men and women being friends. (laughs) Right? Now, we have our own issues in a sexualized culture of why we're afraid of that, and we need to move through that. That's a holiness thing. There needs to be wisdom. But we should have friends, uh, different genders, okay? Because we're brothers and sisters. Now, then it was a totally different issue. Then they had inherited in a Greco-Roman world from Aristotle that only equals can be friends and men and women aren't equals, right? But all of a sudden, Jesus is friends with women and they're part of his following and his disciples. And then you had people who are wealthy, people who weren't, right? All of these people were bound together through self-sacrificial love, through vulnerability, but also because of a shared mission. So Jesus shares these three things about the what of friendship. And finally, we need to ask about the one true friend. Do you see what's really being offered to you in this text? What's really being offered to me in this text as we later on read the Gospel of John? Remember why the Gospel of John was written, by the way, so that they may know who Jesus is and what he's come to do. So you see, it's not merely principles for friendship that's being offered to us. What's being offered to you and to me this morning in this text is the one true friend who can truly transform you. The one true friend who is ultimately faithful to you, even at the cost of his own life. A friend who was vulnerably open to you, even when that meant he would lose his life. Jesus remained faithful to you, even when you were his enemy because he knew he was going to make you his friend. I'll go as far as to say that you will not be able to fully experience deep, genuine community and friendship. I will not be able to experience that. Even in any relationship, think about your most vulnerable relationships. You and I won't be able to experience what Jesus is talking about until we know him as our one true friend and he is at the center of our life because you and I will never be able to give what we have never received. In Jesus, we are completely known and completely loved. Listen, every friend you have will let you down in fantastical ways. And they probably already have. No one will completely get you at the level that you feel like you need to be gotten. No one. No one will get you like that but you need it and you want it. Jesus, the one true friend, knows you, loves you, and gets you like that. And so you realize that you and I, if we are to be from a secure base and move out loving self-sacrificially, but also being self-disclosing appropriately, being vulnerable, on mission together, in order for this to happen, 
we have to experience the love of Jesus. That has to be our base. He has to be our one true friend. Jesus is the one who dignifies you with his friendship and secures you with his friendship and offers a love that will transform you. This is the friend who invites you to a table with him and treats you as a friend. If you have this friendship, it will change the rest of your relationships. And until you have this friendship, the rest of your relationships are limited. It's pointed out to me this week that in the ancient world, friendship was something that could only exist between equals. And I already mentioned that. But in the Bible, friendship is something that makes us equal. And that's a mystery. It's a mystery that God would move toward us and make us co-heirs with Christ. In the Bible, friendship is something that's unique. Here's a God who has no equal. And yet Jesus somehow says, I call you friends. You see, the whole plan of salvation could be described as an act of friendship where God took on human likeness that we may take on his likeness again, transforming enemies and making them friends. As we commune with God, it must push us, move us into deep, genuine friendships before we ever talk about mission because it's not like you just go do mission. This, what we just talked about, is a part of the mission. So for New City to be about the flourishing of communities, this community must flourish. But not for the sake of ourselves, but community for the sake of communities. Let's pray together. Father, I come to you now grateful for your mercy in our lives, grateful that you are the God that you are Who has a God like you who pursues, who reveals himself, who saves and gives himself for his enemies? I ask now as we respond that you would give us time to focus, reflect on what you would call us to do as friends in this community. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.